our speaker this morning, who's much more than just a speaker. She's a very special person that we have with us today. Um, I, I gave her this introduction yesterday uh, when we had an event called Celebrating Women in Leadership. And we really do believe at this church that celebrating women in leadership is an Acts 2 issue. It says your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They will both prophesy. And so we really do believe about leading and raising women up in the ministry. We think that's a really big kingdom issue. And we were able to have a huge kingdom impact. There was about 250 people present yesterday, and it's just an amazing event up at APU. Well, Dr. Lyon doesn't just run some massive bureaucracy like some denominational leaders tend to run. She um, takes running a denomination to an entirely new level. She follows the lead of the Holy Spirit wherever it might take her. Whether when we found this out on Friday night, whether it's Mongolia, Pakistan, Brazil, Sierra Leone, Liberia, or even the Oval Office where she gives advice to presidents, or Cuba, she is teaching our old denomination a new trick but it really is our only trick. It's the oldest one in the book, and that is to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit wherever it goes. Wherever God takes us, she walks through any open door that the Holy Spirit props open. She sticks a foot in and gets the kingdom in alongside her. She is a prophet, constantly speaking truth and in love to whoever it needs to be spoken to, including ourselves, the church. She's a pastor to pastors, shepherding them to new heights. She is an apostle, literally the sent one, to any nation and every ethnicity. She's a teacher, helping people to grasp new truths about Jesus. And finally, she's an evangelist. She loves Jesus, and it comes across in everything that she does. She loves Jesus and wants the whole world to hear about it. Would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Joanne Lyon, the General Superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. You want me to come up here? I'm done. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, I'm deeply moved by what he said, and when he said it yesterday at APU, I had to hold back the tears, but when I got up, I thought, I can't start blubbering the very beginning here, but I'm deeply moved by those words, and I really don't deserve it. Uh, it's only through the power of Jesus that makes any of this take place. And you know, you never know when you say yes to the Lord, what that means. Um, you know, and he has his best interest at heart for you. Sometimes we're fearful to say, well, if I say yes to God, he's going to put me through all kinds of horrible things. You know, uh, it is about saying yes to Jesus, and wherever you walk with him, it is about what he's shaping you and how he's shaping you. And uh, so it is the, the vision that he had it for you when you were born. Now, I think about stories. We all have a story. And, uh, and we live that story out by what people have said we are. Uh, who, where you're from, where you're, who your mother is, who your father is, all of this. And so you just keep, and well, it, you know, it's like, we don't do that in our family, you know. Okay, well, I'll live out that story, whatever that story is. But I'm telling you, when Jesus comes, he gives you a new story. And he wants you to live out that new story. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. And that new story is what he had in mind for you when you were born. He had a new story for you. 
That's why he says when you're born again, it's starting over again. It's that new story. And so today, just begin to live and lean into that new story that Jesus has for you and, and be bold and courageous and moving through in that new story. I've just got to tell you a funny little story that happened years ago when I was out here. I, I think it was over here in Orange County to Presbyterian Church or something. Probably didn't even belong there, but anyway. Uh, I was there, and so there was a dinner the night before. And uh, so they asked where I was from. And I said, well, you know, I was from Oklahoma. I didn't know that Oklahoma was a very terrible thing to say in California. And um, so I said, well, I was born in Oklahoma, lived there until I was 13, and my parents were pastors. So then we moved from there uh, to Illinois and Ohio and all of that. Well, the third person from me around the table said, well, since Joanne was so honest, I've hidden this from you all for all these years. I'm from Oklahoma. <laughs> and I thought, uh, when I'm thinking about new stories, how she'd hidden that story. Come to find out, we had gone to the fourth grade together in Oklahoma City. So it was a really funny story. But uh, how many times we have these stories we don't want to tell because we want to impress people where we are. Well, whatever your story is in the past, forget it. God has a new story for you. and You don't have to be ashamed of any story. It's the new story that he's doing in you. So it's been wonderful to be here this weekend and all of the things. And you have a fantastic pastor and wife. Don't you believe that? Yes, I love them. You've got the, the prime leaders of the Wesleyan Church right here in your midst. And uh, value them because they're great. Dave and Desiree, thank you so much for how you lead, how you love, how you care. It's wonderful. And it's really living out how Jesus taught us to live on mission with Jesus. And, uh, and I love that with what I've, the people that I've connected with in this congregation already. You're on mission with Jesus and how you're living that out. And so it's wonderful uh, to be here. I just want to give you a brief word about what's happening in the Wesleyan Church. Um, I mean, God's doing a lot of work all over the world, but I have, we're all kind of in that little slice of the kingdom of God called the Wesleyan Church. And God is blessing in marvelous ways. And uh, every day I hear new stories of new people coming to Christ. And you will find this interesting. People talk about all over about, oh, how the church is dying in, in North America. Well, it isn't, in the Wesleyan Church anyway. We have had, since 2009, literally straight up attendance, conversions, and baptisms. Just straight up. This last year, we had over 35,000 new Christians, that came, new people that came to Jesus. That, I'm talking about just here in, in the United States, uh, not, not overseas. Overseas is happening too. But God is p- making people new. And they're becoming hungry for him. And uh, so we're just seeing some amazing things take place. And it's been wonderful to me to see some of our pastors who are living, leaving large churches and saying, I'm going into the city and plant a new church. Uh, and and, and like, like, I mean, it's like packing your goods in a coffin because, you know, there's no money. They're just going there. And so I'm seeing this great dedication happening. Uh, just here, not only overseas, but right here in the United States. So I'm really grateful for what God is doing. Then God's doing some powerful things overseas. And uh, it's amazing to me to see. I know that we hear horrible things on the news. But God is at work there. And I was just in a meeting this week. And I know the horrible things we, we have heard in Iraq and in Syria. And yet, as I listened to some people this week, I heard about churches that were flourishing in Syria. How can that be? But it's happening. And I was with one uh, leader who said, just in our church just this last week, we had eight 
18 new believers and baptize 18 people in the midst of the war in Syria. So God is present in these places. And uh, so, don't, I mean, we see the news and we, we don't know. And I, I was in Egypt in May. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I shared that here Friday night. I didn't. But anyway, if I did, you've got to listen to it again. Uh, but I was in Egypt in May. In May, And we have uh, about 40-some congregations, 50 congregations, I think, in Egypt. Been there since 1919. They've been there a long time. And, um, but you know what's happened in Egypt and the tens of thousands that were killed in Tahir Square. And there's still a lot of unrest in the country of Egypt. And Christians are persecuted there. And so I didn't know when I got there if I would find that the people would be afraid and the pastors would be afraid and they'd be hiding because a lot of times in persecution you hide. They aren't hiding. And as we entered that room that night, and it was all a big celebration and uh, very fascinating kinds of things took place that night. And then the pastor started sharing, and they said the Arab Spring, and that's when thousands of people were killed in Tahir Square. They said the Arab Spring broke our imagination of what God can do. Well, I wasn't sure what they meant by that. I thought, oh, dear, I'm not hearing what I want to hear. And then they went on to say that since the Arab Spring, four million Muslims have come to Jesus. And part of that had taken place has been right there on Tahir Square, there was this great big church that was right there. And they'd always boarded up everything, and, the, and the, the riots were taking place. And finally, the Lord spoke to the pastor and said, open up my church. They opened the courtyard, opened the church, and literally turned that church into a hospital for the dying. Blood flowing every place, all over their beautiful carpets and everything else all the wounded, but they started taking care of everybody, and Muslims began to see the love and experience the love of Jesus. And they said, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, this is what we want. So it was about opening their heart and opening their door. Uh, And uh, then I went on to one of our churches, and one of the pastors said to me, um, well, he said, uh, the Muslim, the radical Muslims were coming through our town here and is on down out of Cairo in another place, and he said, they were coming in, they were burning all the Christian churches. And so I heard that they were going to burn our church and burn me in the church. So he called our leader, and uh, he said, what should I do? If I leave, I will leave our people behind, but if I stay, I'm going to be burned up in the church. And our leader said, let me pray. And I thought, isn't that good? Too many times we give an opinion before we pray. He prayed, he called him back, and he said, aren't neighbors of your church Muslims? And he said, yes. Why don't you call on your neighbors to protect your church? And so he hadn't even talked to those neighbors. You see how isolated they had been? And he started going around and talking to all the neighbors because if they burnt, the buildings were like this, and if they burned the church, they'd burn their houses too. They began to think that's exactly right. And so when they came, they burned other churches in that town, and when they came with their torches to burn our church, the Muslims surrounded our church with as an army, and the Our church was not burned. Now, guess what happened after that? The pastor took me. I was there. The pastor took me into an area, and that little community center, they called it. It's probably about as big as this platform, and it had a a rusty swing and a broken-down slide. But they said, "We've we've got a new community center here. We've got a playground for children. And Muslim children and Christian children are playing in this playground. And we've invited all the community to have their wedding receptions here and all this kind of thing. Guess what? God had broken down those walls, and now, and so when I walked in the church that day, it was during the week, it wasn't a service, there were two Muslim men who met me at the door of our church. (laughs) 
That is God at work, how he accomplishes his work. There's so many wonderful things happening in the world today that I, and I just want you to know that God is, he has no, no uh, boundaries. God is working throughout the world. So I want to draw your attention today to Romans, the 15th chapter, uh, beginning with verse 17. Whoops, there, I didn't lose it. Um, and how, what I want to um, talk about today is how Christ accomplishes his work. You see, we talk about, uh, well, does God do it this way? Does God do it this way? Well, this is kind of a little simple place here on how Christ accomplishes his work. Romans, the 15th chapter, beginning with verse 17. He says, therefore, Paul is writing this to the church at Rome. This was a little, little group. This wasn't any great big church. This is no big cathedral in Rome, my friends. This is just a group, a little tiny group of Christians. I mean, nobody even knows who they are. And so he writes, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. Now, I'm telling you, Paul was a very learned man. He was one of the most learned men in the culture at that time. He studied, if we wanted to talk about some of the greatest philosophers and whatever in our world today, that's what Paul had studied with in his day. So if he'd walk in today, we would all say, wow, this is this really smart man coming in here, you know, and he knows everything. But don't you love this? He says, I will not uh, speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished. It is what Christ accomplishes through us. We may study, we may know things, but Christ ultimately is the one who accomplishes his work. It is not us. What Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God, and he gives us three ways in which Christ accomplishes his work. By what is said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be uh, building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. I want to take a look at those three ways in which Christ accomplishes his work. The first one is what's said and done. Or another way that, said, that in other translations have this is it is word and deed. That's another translation, same thing, said and done, word and deed. Let's take a look at this. First of all, when you read Scripture, it's very important to know who is it written to. What was the culture like when, they, when, they, when Paul wrote this? Well, what was it like in that country? What was it like in that city? What was it like in the city of Rome at that time? And um, there we get Earrings get in the way here. They didn't make these for women with earrings. There we go. Um, and uh, so let's just take a look a bit at what was, what was Rome like at that time when Paul wrote this. There was a little bitty group of Christians. In fact, some, believer, some people believe that Junia, that you see in Romans, the last chapter of Romans, her name in there, was one of the, one of the founders, one of the church planters in the, this new group of Christians in Rome. They were unknown. They didn't, nobody even knew them. The, the Roman leaders didn't even know who they were. Now, let me describe a bit of the culture. 
The culture of Rome at that time, uh, in fact, they did not even believe in any kind of mercy or love. The philosophers of that time taught that if you showed any kind of mercy, you had a character flaw. So you would be sent to the psychiatrist immediately if you had any kind of mercy at all because that, did, that was not who they were. Now think about the teachings of Jesus. Everything that Jesus taught was absolutely opposite of what that culture was. They were a culture of violence. The greater the games, the more blood on the ground of those games, the more the emperors loved it, the more the people cheered. A culture of violence. They also did not value life. If a child was born disfigured or disabled in any way, they threw that child away. They would throw that child on the side of the road. They did not value uh, marriage at all. Uh, and women were, 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 were just things to be used, people to be used. Uh, and there are accounts of men being married for 35 times, marrying a woman who'd been married 27 times. That's how marriage was valued. So there was, no, there was nothing about a, a, a husband and wife loving each other, staying together forever. That was just not part of it. Homosexuality was very, uh, very open in that community. There were statements that were made that if a boy had sexual experience by the age of eight, it was too late. So this is what the culture was like. And here is this little band of Christians living out what Jesus taught. And so we would say, well, poor things, here they are. How in the world are they going to even survive in the middle of this culture? Will they ever influence anyone in this culture? Well, it's interesting. They just lived it out. And so it was fascinating uh, as... um, And also, there was a great divide between the rich and the poor at that time. You had the very wealthy, and then you had the poor that were just crammed into these, they were called old tenement houses. In fact, some authors have said that the density of the population in Rome was eight times greater than Calcutta, India today. So just think of the density of people. So disease was, was, was very open among poor people, and sores all over their bodies because of of the sanitation issues and all kinds of things. This is this little group of Christians living in the midst of this. Rome, the most powerful city in the world. It would be like New York City or London living it out. So just think about L.A. Think about the population in L.A. living it out just in, in the middle of this place. Well, they started living out love. The love that Jesus taught. Loving enemies. Loving life. Valuing life. Taking care of people. So they would see these children, these disabled children that had been thrown on the side of the road, and they started picking up those children. Taking them in. Taking care of them. Seeing, they were beginning to see healing. Raising these children. They also got married. And people on the outside began to see that man. Oh, my goodness. They've been married one year. They've been married two years. Nothing's happened. Also, women who were abused in many of these relationships began to think, 
I think I could trust those people. Is this a place I could go and be safe, be taken care of? And so these women started coming in. Well, along the line, there was a, a, a plague that took place. The historians believe it's probably something like smallpox. And so people started dying, dying, dying. So they would throw the dead bodies on the side of the road. The Christians, because they so valued life and the dignity of human beings, would take these dead bodies and bury them, giving them a proper burial of the dignity of life. Well, the word began to spread throughout Rome. Who in the world are these crazy people? Why do they do this? And they would begin to share what Jesus taught, who Jesus was, and that you could be made new. Well, it became so frantic in Rome at that time that when anyone began to have symptoms of smallpox, they would throw the live people on top of the dead bodies. And the Christians would take the live people and take care of them. And historians have noted that not one Christian got the plague. That was a, uh, just a phenomenal miracle that God did to say, I want you to see the power of God and to see what the power of my love really is. Well, another thing that was kind of fascinating was that uh, then people who had any kind of means left the city. They left. They fled. They got out of there, which left only the poor people, but it also left a lot of jobs. So the Roman armies went out to the, to, the, to the countryside and conscripted these strange people, people who didn't know the language, we would call them today immigrants, conscripted them to come into Rome and to do the labor. Guess who befriended those immigrants? The Christians. I want to tell you now, the church is growing because everyone that they touched started believing in Jesus. And it started growing, 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 growing. This is word and deed, my friends, what is said and done until the church grew so large in Rome over the next hundred years that an emperor came in and said, I got these Christians, we've got to get rid of them. I want to reintroduce pagan religion to Rome. And he tried and tried and tried and finally gave up, and he finally said, I give up. He said, I can't do this because he said, those Christians, they take care of not only their own, but they taken care of all of ours, <laughs> gave up, literally transformed that city, this little group who just lived out every day, word and deed, what it meant to follow Jesus. You know, it doesn't take a big crowd to do that. This group right here, you could transform this whole community. Amazing what can be done. The power of God is all wrapped around the power of the Holy Spirit. What is said and done. Much of what I just shared is, has been tracked through by Rodney Stark, who's a great sociologist down at Baylor University. He's written, in this, written about this in The Rise of Christianity and the Triumph of Christianity. And I want to tell you today, Christianity is the largest religion in the world, and it is the fastest growing religion in the world. Don't think that something else is growing faster. People are being drawn to Jesus. Said and done, word and deed. The second one in here is... Signs and miracles. Now, signs and miracles. What does that mean? You know, when Jesus was here on earth, people would say to him, well, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. And he would answer, I am the sign. So when miracles happen, they point to Jesus as the sign. They point to Jesus. 
not a TV evangelist. Okay? I have a little prejudice about that, as you can tell. <laughs> they should point to Jesus, not for your money. Evangelist on TV. Does God still raise people from the dead? Yes, he does. But he does it to draw people to him. I will give you an example. I did not experience this, but this happened in the Wesleyan Church in the country of Mozambique. And John Connor, who's one of our missionaries, has, has um, uh, documented this, was there, the people that were there. So I'm not telling you some wild story someplace. This was in the Muslim part of the country of Mozambique, which is on the east coast of Africa. And they were showing the Jesus film. And uh, after the Jesus film was over, there was a little girl who was there. I say a little girl. She was about 12 or 13. And she died. And it was verified that she was dead. She was not in a coma. It was verified. She was dead for quite a while. Finally, someone said, we need to bring her father here. He'll need to take the body and, and bury the body. So they, they contacted wherever the father was. No, they didn't have the phones. They had to walk, and he was a long ways away. And finally, he got there, and she was still dead. She was dead. And so they were getting ready to take her away, and suddenly she rose up. Now, our, our leaders, our Mozambican leaders, prayed. They were there praying. They didn't shout and scream and do all these kinds of things. It was verified to me that they just they just calmly prayed during that time. I don't know that they prayed for her to raise from the dead. They prayed that what they were praying was that all this Muslim part of Mozambique would come to believe in Jesus. That's what they were praying. And suddenly, they weren't going to leave her until the father got there. Gone a long time. Oh, a day. And suddenly, she rose up. She's still alive today. And that story is what happened was exactly what our Mozambican leaders were praying, that that whole area of, of Muslim area of Mozambique would come to know that Jesus is the living God. And they believed. And today there are Wesleyan churches in all of those villages there because it pointed, this miracle pointed to Jesus, and they believed. Also, just in the Muslim world, and I travel some, uh, quite a bit in the Muslim world, and the Muslim world, God is doing some powerful things through signs and miracles. And that is, he's speaking to people through dreams, visions and dreams. I was uh, sitting in one of our countries, and I was in a, a cell, underground cell group. It's not really underground. The first time, oh, I guess we go in a basement or something, but it's not really. <laughs> It's just in somebody's uh, house, and, and you, it's, nobody knows about it. So I was sitting there, and this woman was sitting next to me, and I thought, I that people even know to get here. And I said, how did you, what, what brought you here? And she said, oh, I had this compelling dream. was this person that was not get away from it. And so she said, I started asking people, do you know? And finally someone said, if you'll go to the sixth floor on Tuesday night at such and such an Knock on the door and tell them I sent you. You'll find out. And so she did. And she said to me, she said, and so I found out. And it's Jesus. And I come here every Tuesday night. This compelling dream. 
Howard Paul Eshelman has shared so many things about this happening in this world, but one that I think is probably one of the most dramatic is I was with him in Thailand uh, several years ago, and he shared that they rented a facility in the Middle East to show the Jesus film. And he said in this, um, that they, they'd really prayed and prayed and prayed over this facility. It was an auditorium packed, thousands, uh, not thousands, but probably about a thousand, I think. And they show, the Jesus film started, and suddenly, ten men in different parts auditorium that night, all stood up at the same time and said, that's him. He came to my room last night. And every one of them had had the same experience. The room filled with light. They did not know each other, but their room filled with light, woke them up, and there stood Jesus. Now, it's interesting that it was the same Jesus. It was, we don't really know how Jesus looks, but God knew and he needed they could identify with. That night, that entire auditorium became believers in Jesus. This is happening over and over. You see, our Lord has no boundaries. He has no political boundaries, no geographical boundaries, no, no human boundaries, no bodily boundaries. He wants his graces out there. He's breaking through those barriers to speak his love to millions of people at this time. Sometimes it takes a long time in a, in a place where people are, and they just live it out. And we begin to see one of our, uh, two of our, a couple in a country that who's, I can't name, uh, were there three years, handed out, finally were able to hand out five Bibles. And three people said, brought them back and said, we don't want them. Two Bibles. How would you like to do that for three years? Living every day. And you finally, two people say, well, I will read this. Well, it wasn't long until some ethnic cleansing came along in that country. They've lived there. They live there. It's kind of like where Jesus says the word became flesh and moved. There with the people. And they began to take care of the people. And they began to help them rebuild. And they began to love them. Again, the word and deed, the signs and miracles. And guess what? Just six months ago, they asked for 5,000 Bibles. Those have been distributed, and not a one has been returned. See, that's how our God works. Signs and miracles. Word and deed, signs and miracles. And then the final one here is all of this is wrapped around the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that ultimately does all of this. We are his instrument. We don't have to figure it all out. We are just his people. He moves through us, and he does the work. Probably the person that impacted me the most in this is Samuel Justin. Do I need that? I think it's not working right here. Okay. There we go. Is that better? Okay. Samuel Justin. And uh, Samuel Justin is, he just passed away a few months ago, but he was 85 years old. He's about that tall. He's a little man. And uh, he uh, has been our leader of the Wesleyan Church in Gujarat, India. It's a state in India. Samuel was a street boy on the streets of Bombay. And a Christian Indian couple picked him up at the age of five and raised him. When I was there, not long ago, he said to me, did you know that I was a blind boy? 
I said, well, I had no idea. Yes, he said, I was blind. I was a blind boy on the streets of Bombay. And he said, you know, my mother that adopted me one day, she said to me, Samuel, the Lord does not want you blind. So she just put her hands on my eyes and prayed. And he said, since then, I've been able to see. What a, I mean, what faith and what a miracle. I, you know, 85 years later, 80 years later, here he is. Well, this, the state of Gujarat has what's called non-conversion laws. I'm sure you'd love to pastor here, Dave. Non-conversion laws means that any person that leaves the Hindu faith in particular and comes to, to want to become a Christian, you have to go to the court. And you have to go to the court, and you have to prove to the courts that you were not coerced. Now, how about that? And every time I'm there praying with those pastors, we have about 30 pastors there, 30 churches, and, I, and they always open their services, their times together by singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I think, I cry, because they know far more what it means to follow Jesus than I do. And they have to live under those circumstances all the time. Well, one day, the, there was a radical Hindu sect in that state, and they decided that little Samuel Justin, who's 85 years old, is a threat. A threat to them. You see, it's not because of Samuel's stature. But it's the power of Christ through him. That's the threat. And so they decided that Samuel was a threat to them, so they put a price on Samuel's head. And they wanted Samuel killed. Because he was too much of a threat. Well, Samuel heard about this, and they said, there's a price on his head. And uh, so his family said, oh, Daddy, you need to stay inside. Don't go outside. We want you protected. And he said, I'm not about to do that. I'm going to continue to do what I've always done. If I get killed, I get killed. I mean, our fam- we would, my- I'm sure your children would do the same. But he wasn't going to obey that. Well, word got to the government in uh, Gujarat, and they heard about that, and they didn't want to get accused by the larger government of India, so they said, well, we'll put, a, put some secret police on Samuel so that we will say we've protected him in some way. So they put secret police on Samuel. Samuel had no idea who the secret police were. He had no idea where they were. He had no idea. Someone told him, and he said he had heard about that, but he didn't even know where they were. He just continued his work. Well, about a year later, I was in the country. We had a great service that morning. There were about a thousand people there that morning. And at the end, he said, now we're going to have a baptismal service today. And we have 37 people who are coming from other faiths for this baptismal service. And Joanne Lyon's going to help me baptize. Now, it is against the law in India for foreigners to baptize. So the courageous and bold person that I am, I said to Samuel, are, are we going to do this inside? <laughs> and he said, no, we're going outside for the whole world to see. So we went outside. And there was a great big horse, like we would say in this country, a big horse tank of water, and a great big cross. I mean, there was no, no question about what was happening here. Big cross at the end. And as we were walking across that, part, that uh, dusty road there, dusty uh, yard to get to the baptismal thing. He had his head bowed and he said, now I need to tell you that 
today, we're going to baptize two couples. And the men are members of the secret police. I looked at him and I said, Samuel, do you mean to tell me that these men who have been following you around all the time, you did not know who they were, you did not know where they were, but the power of Jesus was so strong coming from you that they were willing to give up their ancestral religion, they were willing to give up their jobs, they were willing to give up their families to become followers of Jesus? He kind of bowed his head and he said, I guess so. And I'm telling you, my friends, since that day, I've never been able to get away from this. If someone followed me around all the time, would they be so compelled to follow Jesus? Would they see Jesus in everything that I did? That's the power of the Holy Spirit moving through you. And you have no idea how you're impacting people around you as you open yourself for the power of Jesus to move through you. Yes, this is how Christ accomplishes his work. He accomplishes it through word and deed, through signs and miracles, and the power of the Holy Spirit through you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this group of people this morning, this great church. I thank you. And I thank you for all that you want to accomplish through them. I thank you for the word and deed that's already being done and even more that you want to accomplish through them. I thank you for the signs and miracles and the miracles I've already heard that are happening in this congregation. I thank you for that. I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that wraps around all of these things. And that when we leave this place, we will see you doing even greater things through us as we move out in this to every part of our life today. And so this morning, Lord Jesus, I just dedicate this whole congregation to you. I dedicate Dave and Desiree as they lead this congregation and all the staff as they lead this congregation. And I thank you for every leader in this congregation. Every person sitting in this place is a leader. And I thank you for a new wine that you want to put in them that's your spirit, your Holy Spirit, moving through them in greater ways than we can ever imagine for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.